how's um uh, how's your day been? How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling a lot better. Thanks for asking. Yeah, this is great. I'm I'm super interested in all of the stuff that you've been researching. Thanks for uh, reaching out, by the way. And uh, of course, yeah, this is this is really really cool. I'm like. It's kind of funny. I've been thinking about this stuff a lot. I, I don't know if you've ever read Derrida's essay, Archive Fever. Um, probably at some point, Archive Fever. Um, I have to see what the title is. Title is in French. Do you speak? Do you speak French? Yeah, if, yeah. English is my third language. French is my second. I think it's un grand mal de archive. Is that right? I think so. M yeah, Mal d'Archive. I haven't read that one. Um, but I, you know, but um, um, definitely like a, in the last couple of years, archives as a field of research have become very, very hot, right? So like, right. Um, contestatory archives, re-archives, anti-archives, independent archives, right? Um, everything from sort of decolonializing archives all the way to recontextualizing them. It's been, I think, a big point of inquiry for a lot of different folks. Yeah, that that's actually very, very true. You're one of the first people I've talked to who's brought that up because I've been sort of interested in the history of the library sciences and archives and how they sort of came about. And, you know, it's kind of it's really interesting that you say that because your whole project, and I kind of want to, when you sort of hit me with this, with this research uh, PDF and book that you did, it really, really spoke to me a lot because I think we're sort of in a, in a moment where we sort of reach like peak archive, you know, there's just only so many like exabytes of data that we have left before it all just becomes a complete wash, in my opinion. So it's to me, it's about sort of like pinpointing like what is useful data? What is dummy data? Like what, what, how do we figure this thing out? And I think uh, counterpoints is really super interesting. You know, if you want to just talk about the project, I don't know how you want to introduce yourself or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so just like um, to step back a little bit, just overall um, uh, in terms of like bio, why I'm doing this and why I'm interested in this. Um, I'm a designer, uh, artist and cyber ethnographer, specifically as a cyber ethnographer, I study digital communities. I'm an adjunct professor of design and media theory at um, NYU, and I run a design studio called 131. And a lot of my research has been focused on the interaction between humans and machines, um, the metaverse, and of course, like the implications of being online. I think fundamentally, a lot of my research is not so much driven by what I would call academic interests as it is really somewhat selfish, right? It is because I was reared as a child of the 90s and 2000s on the internet. And one of the experiences that I've had to endure is loss. There was a prevailing discourse when I first sort of entered my digital life that be careful what you post because it can be there forever, right? There was this, um, um, there was this idea of, of digital trace or digital footprint, which was a big talking points for for like Xers and boomers, 
be careful what's on Facebook, be careful what you post because employers will find any little thing that you've posted ever, even if you delete it, it will stay on the internet forever. And because that was so prominent specifically in like finding jobs and the overall discourse around my shift from like adolescence to adulthood, I think I kind of believe that. And so as I was being told that the internet was a place of permanence and that was going to have a deleterious effect, of course, on my like employment and um, sort of career prospects, simultaneously, the digital experiences that I used to um, have or that I used to, to frequent, uh, the space that I used to frequent, a lot of them over time had disappeared. And so a big part of this was reconciling the like the paradox of these two things that I was being told, namely that things were going to stay there forever. But at the same time, I was being bombarded by the trauma of digital loss. And yeah, essentially when I was doing my master's, I was studying specifically um, AI in the metaverse. And part of what I wanted to uncover was the nature of the human intervention within those technologies and a big part of identifying the the human intervention or the participation is finding traces and doing a cyber or cyber archaeology so the book is called the cyber archaeology of checkpoints uh checkpoints is this bygone lost digital community which in the process of this research i um excavate right from you know, whatever tr- digital trash bin um, uh, I- I've, I've been able to find it in. So, yeah, it's I think it's it's so amazing to you know speak to you, to speak to so many people and have the reaction always be like, whoa, this is I don't know checkpoints specifically, but this speaks to me because I've had a similar experience. And that has been like the resounding um, feedback that I've gotten. I think we all have felt what I call in that last essay, the shock of deletion and the shock of alteration. Right. That's a, that's a really great phrasing for that. Uh, only because, but it is sort of interesting because I feel like when you talk about like the deleterious uh, effect of posting personal information or even anonymous information that can be doxed on the internet, there still is like the Wayback Machine which can excavate any sort of amount of data based on actual sort of like checkpoints. You know, you go into the calendar and you can look stuff up. I know there's been things that have been deleted on the internet that have sort of uh, reappeared in court, for example, that nobody thought that they could find. So that digital inscription is always there. I don't want to say this is like a Rocco's Basilisk moment or whatever, but I do think it's it is interesting, like digital loss, because even like there are photos that got that I had uploaded to Flickr from my old days, like doing graffiti or working on random guitar stuff or just just like sort of like my hobbies that I would upload and Flickr got corrupted. It had a mass corruption and like mm-hmm. all my files got like uh, um they got distorted in a weird way. They because they were sort of some like semi half corrupted, and that kind of process. Like there are times when I'm like, 
damn, that was the only place I had that photo. And now it's like, like digitally glitched out or whatever. So I, I think that's a really sort of fascinating uh, thing that you bring up. Whether it's Flickr, whether it um, is even like a personal loss, you know, people who drop their coffee on their on their MacBook that they've had for five, six years and they haven't backed it up, right? So we're always toying with the possibility of losing an immense part of our personal histories. Specifically, I think in the book, what is interesting to me is that we go on these platforms like Facebook and YouTube and we spend... At this point on Facebook, you know, over a decade cataloging our lives. And I'm not saying that we will all be great men and that we'll all do great things. Um, and I, I pray we all do. But in a sense, a lot of these traces will denote the, I don't know, the histories of the future um, artists, creatives, leaders, of this world, but also just the stories of people like myself, just regular folks, um, the the workers, the laborers, the the people working nine to fives, and their stories. Which you know, when we read the texts of say like a a Balzac or a Zola, just like these little stories, these like naturalist tales of 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 of, of life, essentially. I really fear that the moment that the impetus for Facebook changes a lot of this may be gone. And for a future archaeologist, you know, I talk about this, um, this future hunter in reference to Shelley's poem, who may and try to identify um, the traces that we as, as a civilization have left in this world. They may find nothing because no one was incentivized to archive it. Um, and of course, it's the Wayback Machine. And of course, there's the Internet Archive. Um, but Unfortunately, these still remain, you know, they're doing an amazing, amazing work. And I think I heavily salute them in in in, in the book. However, it is still incomplete and imperfect, specifically right. at the more granular personal and individual level. That's a really interesting point. And, you know, one of the things that I think about, too, is that, you know, I think the Internet uh, incentivizes, I mean, I don't think this, I think it's pretty obvious. It incentivizes to sort of like, um, create these kind of like grandiose narratives around persona and identity and wh who we are. And, you know, the, there's, there's sort of like, there, there's a real impetus to sort of like mystify ourselves or fictionalize our biographies. But I think, uh, part of jacking into that incentive structure we've kind of lost uh, a sort of grasp of the power of our own histories. And I think that one of the things that's, that's really sort of interesting about checkpoints is you have people who are talking about like sort of real experiences, whether it's like loss or whatever. And it's like, part of me wonders if, if this incentive structure is to sort of I don't know, you say lorize our lives. I feel like that is also amending itself uh, to potential loss of of history itself. I have this quote that actually is not included in the book where I speak on a personal level and I say that I'm torn between um, John Williams' stoner and the, like 
the Pharaoh, specifically Ramses uh, II. I think we all fundamentally have this desire to mythologize our existences and um, want to build the houses of a million years like the Pharaoh. But we also realize in the way that, so Stoner is a book by John Williams, sorry to, to, to give some context about just a regular guy living in the middle of America who sort of um, goes through war, loss, love. Um, yeah, just a regular life, um, which we know will end in death. And I thought it was such a beautiful book about um, the beauty in the, the beauty in mundane things and in the everyday life, in the quotidian. And so we're, especially on the internet, where we can sort of elevate even the simplest things like a meal, especially on like social media. But there's also the possibility to inscribe that meal in this like grand narrative of one's life and one's personal lore. I have this term that this term um, I called otomythopoiesis, which is um, something I came up with as I was talking to uh, Liddy Mars, who um, was a, a fellow at uh, other internet and did some research on digital lore in a project called the Lore Zone. So otomythopoiesis is the process through which we create our own myths of ourselves, especially when it becomes when when we are afforded digital platforms to do so. Um, namely because it's the first time we can distribute these memes about ourselves to such a wide audience. You could always have written like an autobiography of your life and, you know, say I've done all these great things, but the possibility to distribute it, I think, is a new affordance of digital media. And so all these things converge with a desire to share, a desire to um give pieces of our lives to other people and put them on these platforms. And to me, the question is, you know, should these pieces, should these posts be saved? Um, and what does it mean to save them? And what does it mean for them to be, of course, in the concept checkpoints deleted? That's a really interesting term, automythopoiesis. I, I feel like that's a much uh, more appropriate one than some of the other ones that have been sort of floating around. Uh, I I am sort of fascinated by this notion that this constant incentivized, the, the ability to sort of mythologize our own lives, I feel like is sort of almost like a, it's become so commonplace that it's almost like the most Low, it's like the lowest vibrational extension of the quotidian itself rather than just our ability to kind of like celebrate the little like ritualistic I don't want to say they're they're miracles or anything but but just the small things in our lives and so to me it's almost like the internet is no longer I I think part of that is just because everything is so extant and overexposed and it's like how many times do you log on to Twitter and you see like the same sort of boilerplate hot take over and over, but just with like a different profile picture? And you know what I mean? So part of me is like wondering if there's any way to find something that is separate. And I think if you want to get, go into checkpoints a little bit, like what it is, how it started a bit of the history, I think that's really interesting because to me, it it, it does sort of harken back to a, a bit of like a more like wholesome digital experience. You know, this is 
Web 2.0, obviously there's a, a difference between the start of that and now. So, yeah. I like how you frame it where there is this like constant low vibrational desire to um, exploit both our daily lives, but also the discourse as a way to what I'm assuming the user goal is here is to drive attention to oneself or to, you know, I think it's the flip side of the, of the sharing one story coin. The problem to me in terms of like the interface speaking from like a design perspective is when the act of sharing is attached to um, what I call an identity driven profile, meaning Facebook, Twitter, something that people can like go back to over and over again and sort of identify with you, then you're able to relate all the different posts and all the different pieces into this continuous stream of lore building, like the stream of, of otomitopoiesis. Um, now, what I thought was wonderful about Checkpoints is actually that the fact that it was on YouTube provided a, a different set of incentives. Um, Daniel Keller and, and Carolyn Busta have this notion of the physics of media, which I think is quite interesting. And the physics of a YouTube comment section are quite different than the physics of, say, a Twitter um, uh, a Twitter thread or, or just the Twitter app in general. So to explain a little bit more about Checkpoint, just so people have a bit more context here, Checkpoint is a digital community um, that started under the comment section of a YouTube video. The YouTube video was essentially a loop of uh, the Donkey Kong uh, Country 2 soundtrack um, sort of looped with the vines and little clouds so really just like a moody lo-fi, you know, very much in the vein of classic video game OSTs, soundtracks, soundtracks on YouTube. Now, what happened around um, um, around the time of its creation is this, that people started posting something in the format of Checkpoint, colon, and um, an update on one's life could be, I just lost my girlfriend. It's like, I've never felt heartbreak like this before. Um, I've had my first kid. Uh, I, you know, my, my life has changed forever. And of course the checkpoint is, um, harkens back to video games. When you're in Sonic and you cross a checkpoint, a flag or in whatever game, it means that if you die, you respawn at the checkpoint. And so people were using the YouTube comment section as a way to stake their own checkpoint poll and say that if, you know, in a meta metaphorical way, if they died, they would sort of respawn at the point at which they had checkpoint in the YouTube comment. And this went on for over 10 years with people coming back every six months, every year, providing update after update on their lives. And I think one of the reasons why people were able to be so personal, um, divulgatory, um, empathetic is that it wasn't so much related to this profile, right? This um, identity driven profile, because YouTube has never been the kind of platform where the connection is made from a, on a profile to profile basis. It's made to 
you know, you subscribe to someone, you might look at their profile, but from on, on a commenter's perspective, you're not really trying to connect with the other commenters, right? That isn't one of the physics of the platform, or specifically of the subsection of the YouTube platform. And I think that allowed really for this beautiful emergent digital community to blossom for over a decade. And as a designer, what I think is interesting here is I don't even think that could have been that could have been designed. So we spent so much time trying to figure out, and there's still people, you know, raising money to build a new form of more empathetic, wholesome social media world. Right. Always trying to do Threads. that. Always new companies sort of coming out uh, with a new product that, you know, portends to to do such a thing. And yet what this makes me realize is that communities and groups of people will select the places where they feel comfortable to share, not based on a designer's will, but based on the will of the group. Yeah, you know, that's actually a really good point. One thing that I do notice, though, is like, how does that sort of, um, how, how would that logic translate to something like 4chan or 8chan, which isn't uh, driven by you know, uh, profile, but still sort of fosters this kind of uh, culture of polemics and ramping up the sort of like language. And I feel like, you know, I'm not exactly sure because I'm not really, you know, I'm not so, so, so like- You're I, not I'm, on 4chan every week? <laughs> yeah, I'm not on 4chan every week and I'm not like a older kind of ways of not, of posting. But I do think that there is- a certain like how do you explain something like that because the, it on one hand like i agree but part of it is like i don't know what drives that per se you know because i do notice that there is this sort of like wholesomeness associated with it and also even in like fan forums and and there was that movie like all about lily choo choo where you know, you had these like young uh, teenage boys and one of them had this traumatic experience and became like, like a really like bad kid, but he was able to sort of like wholesomely bond with his fellows uh, basically through their fandom over this fictionalized pop mm -hmm. star. And, and I think about that a lot too, because like, I'm a big fan of Mickey Newbery who wrote a lot of hits in Nashville in the 1960s uh, like really amazing singer songwriter. And I look under his like live YouTube comment channel, like, and it's just like all these old timers who are, you know, very sort of boomer and they talk a lot. They're just like, it, it almost reminds me of checkpoints because they have no personal, uh, they have no like profile of digital inscription. You know, they're probably in their sixties and seventies, but they're like, I remember when I was so depressed and Mickey Newbery's music, was so powerful, it like made me drop the revolver and not pull the trigger. Or just like I met Mickey and he gave me his like, you know, songbook and and you know, we had this friendship when I saw him live and all these people sort of sort of eulogizing him because he died in I think two thousand two or two thousand five, I'm not sure from from cancer. So I, I think I think about that. I'm like, man, you know, wow, this is so wholesome. Like I wish things were like this, but it's like it's kind of exactly what you said. Like, how do you design that again? I think it's almost, it's, it's almost impossible at this point. 
yeah it's 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 definitely a difficult thing to create now what i'll say about 4chan is you know this cuts both ways i've seen in my time um on the platform such incredible expressions of vulnerability on 4chan right like you know you read stories that like will you know as an empathetic person will make you cry whether it be like on R9K whether it be um in um any sort of board where you can have a conversation even like on like a finance board or uh even on the music board or on the fashion board you know on the fashion board you have people going undergoing like full transformations from a state of complete lack of self confidence to whatever they associate with confidence based on what you know the board is telling them to do but that has like a like a when people tell their stories with music fashion or um if they're you know needs essentially or, or robots as they're called they're called on R9K R9K is a board on 4chan um populated by specifically needs um no education right. yeah. employment or training people i feel as though they feel in not empowered but they they feel afforded the opportunity to share and that because this is in this weird anonymous platform people will listen and an interesting thing about being lonely is that even if somebody rags like if somebody sort of hates or uh starts to make fun of you they're still listening right that's a great point and you know this may sound a little trite but of course like indifference is the real is the real violence here right not you're an asshole you're a douchebag you're a loser but the indifference that people can sometimes feel in the um in their daily lives i think really is the thing that pushes them to the um causes a lot of psychological damage so unfortunately i think you have a lot of like um negativity but it's negativity because people are being engaged with and i'm not saying it's healthy i'm sure you know psychology be like you know there's, there's healthier ways to get that that validation but i still think that there is a feedback loop and even if it's 80 negativity 20% positivity i don't know what the actual breakdown is i've have seen examples of vulnerability um and so the other interesting thing that i think is so so worthy of note people know what 4chan is and other people will be right. jerks on it and yet they still post their stories because they know that out of all these jerks sometimes they have one person who understands it can who can relate to their story to post your you know your story on 4chan you know you go you're going to get a lot of flack you know you're going to get people who call you this and that and in spite of that every day people still post their vulnerable stories on the platform and i think that speaks to the underlying value for the individuals who frequent it i 100% agree with that and i think lost in some of the sort of invectives against 4chan that you know it's this place of hate or it harbors this this or that it's like if anything you know it sort of speaks to 
the displacement of universal recognition that Hegel and Kojev talk about, that you, ultimately when you say the real violence is indifference, it is this, I guess you could say, deficit of universal recognition that allows us to be in the world and be present in the world. So, and and that's this is why you do hear so many when you go on Fortune, you see so many stories of loss. And you know, I think there is this. It was really sort of wrong to demonize people as just like being like incels or what have you not when they're not really sort of looking that we have an actual deficit. I think partially because of things like location privilege and the attention economy that have created this sort of mass deficit of what is known to be uh, universal recognition amongst a large demographic of people within society. And so I think in less than, you know, this notion that, you know, violent language is violence, you have to look at the sort of the, the obverse of that as well. No, absolutely. And I mean, I understand, you know, from a external point of view, the criticism, you know, levied towards the platform. And it remains a place teeming with hatred and whatever isms you want to, you know, you want to, you know, uh, call it, but there's still, it's, it still remains a fundamentally human place on the internet. And I think one of the, in the last 10 years, social media, I think has felt less and less human and less real. What I mean by that is that because it's been subsumed by the spectacle, because everyone is portraying their life in the best possible ways, traveling, you know, whatever new car, you know, celebrities on on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. As the spectacles, uh, the spectacle gains terrain on in the digital realm, places where there's a lot of raw human emotion tend to be the ones where you actually feel like you're in touch with the real in a sense. And that may seem counterintuitive because it's not a place that's driven by identity. But the real, especially in the age of spectacle, is not felt through identity, but rather through affect. And on platforms like 4chan, in things like Checkpoint, the communication, the divulgation are made through, uh, they're made effectively and not through just like, this is me or this is there is a personal story, a personal identity, but it is not the main vector for the story like it is in profile-driven platforms. And I think that is a very interesting primitive of communication that is underexplored on the internet in 2023. No, I 100% agree with that. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the, I think the big problem is, is that when you have these sort of profile-driven or celebrity-driven, per- persona-driven, you know, accounts, it you you sort of become beholden to a, a form of ideological or audience capture, where it becomes very sort of difficult for you to like express any sort of vulnerability 
or even like affect of sincerity because I feel like so much of the time people actually sort of write that off. Like they be, they can't tell if you're being serious or not. So why don't you just sort of um, do things for like a, a simulated effect versus affect? And, I, mm. and so I kind of, you know, and this is one of my biggest problems, like Twitter, for example. And I think especially having some sort of like multimedia project or intermediate project because you know you do design you do a lot of different things like sort of like navigating this I think quandary of having to put yourself out there not just in terms of like logos and words and but also like the aesthetic and what the aesthetic creates surrounding you and what is perceived to be a sort of actual reflection of who you are in your daily life and personality. And I think that that's sort of, I think that's kind of like a dangerous bargain to make that I know a lot of people who are not, I don't know, uh, a, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. I know I am to a certain extent. And so I do think checkpoints is, is, is really sort of interesting in that way. And I would like to see, like, what are some examples? Because you interviewed some, and you talk a little bit about GitHub too. And GitHub, I think, is also really interesting. Yeah. I think to sort of conclude on on um, on the profile piece, I, I love the, the notion of effect um, that you bring up. In many ways, not all, but in many ways, the profile for people like myself who are not strong, right? People who are fallible, the profile becomes a prison. And the idea of audience capture is very real. And if your audience that you now have likes something, the human thing is to continue doing that thing. And the more you do a thing, the higher the switching cost is to another thing. And we are, you know, being somewhat status driven, averse to paying that switching cost, i.e. losing followers, reducing our audience, our audience size. And as much as the profile can be a zone of, you know, capitalist empowerment towards status, fame, wealth, whatever, in the same breath, I think it is worth noting that it is also an enframement, an enframement. It is also an identity prison for the poster. And you see this sometimes when someone gets banned or they get, you know, they get a popular a non-account gets deleted. When they respawn, I've seen a lot of people talk about the feeling of liberation that they get from having a brand new account at zero and, and not having to deal with being like this specific and non persona they built over the last 12 to 24 months. So they can kind of start anew. So that's the first um, piece here. In terms of um, checkpoints and, and, and GitHub, I think what was interesting in the interview um, Rebain two thousand and one, which is the who is the Reddit, the Reddit user, who for some you know we we go in 
detail as to why she chose to save this video. But she, two or three months before the video was deleted, she saved it along with the comments, which was brilliant because she understood that you not only had to save the videos, which she had been doing for a while, but the videos existed in a digital context and you needed the metadata i.e. everything that was around the video, as well as the comments, which became a part of the digital experience of the, um, say, content or art piece or whatever. To watch a video on YouTube is not only to watch a video, but it is also to engage in the sociality of that video through the comment section. The interface is content plus community content plus participation, not just content. If it was just content, it'd just be a screen and you wouldn't be able to comment. And realizing that Rebane decides to also save the comments and has um, her own essentially library on GitHub um, that allows her to do that. I think it's highly important to recognize that the things we like are not only the things in and of themselves, but also the things around them. And that's a big part of that conversation on archives because archives are always imperfect because to save is to extract, right? To save is to bring to another context. And by default, you divorce the thing from its environment and you lose something in that process of archiving. In spite of that, I still think it's important. I just think we need to be aware that each sort of action of archival is also one of betrayal of the um, original context of the, uh, of the object or of the content. That's a really good point. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, just in terms of how we, um, how we share or express various, even like projects that we are involved in. Cause I think a lot about how, you know, when you do one thing, say, you want to do writing or something like that. I I feel like it's not just a question of time and energy expenditure, but also this notion that when you archive things and you do share them, there is a sort of canceling out of the potential impact one has to express like maybe like a singular powerful gesture of sorts. And I, I think part of the issue with this personality-driven social media age is that we're, on one hand, it's like there's the impetus to have to keep up, but at the same time, how much of keeping up actually takes away from our ability, not just our, not just our ability, but from like the, the required attention that one has to devote to something as, you know, because even recorded music is a form of archival, right? You know, it's like an MP3 is an archive because essentially what you're doing is you're you're still putting this stuff out into the world. That's the problem with, with the media today is it's not necessarily, and even in live shows or art, or like an art gallery, so much of it you see 
mediated online through the internet anyway. It's it becomes really mm-hmm. sort of difficult to to separate these two things and to find ourselves just immersed in what as you described the thing as it is or the thing in itself. And and so that that kind of like you know that numinous quality I guess kind of like wanes and one thing that I'm constantly rubbing up against is like is there a way to keep things to to digitally share i know terry uh tamlet's dj sprinkles uh who i think does a really interesting art project is really into like this this notion of non-online digital culture so what she'll do is you know burn cds and it's almost like impossible to find her stuff online except for on her blog and there's there's this like dense sort of theoretical web of it's like of writing about things like, you know, uh, if everything from like, you know, NATO imperialism to sort of like queer theory and then mixing it with like this like multimedia, but it's all contained. You can only get it at this one blog. But part of me is like wondering, like, can you even control that? You know, and that's, part of like something I'm at least in how I personally relate to these platforms and the things that I want to do, like how much of that, because part of me is just like, fuck it. I just want to like write country songs and like only do this one thing. And it's just like, how much of this does it get any better? Because I think I'm at a good balance right now, but I'm just wondering, you know, it's, it's strange. There's a lot here. Um, the first piece, I think, is, I guess, to me, is 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 sort of agreeing um, with um, Heidegger in the idea that um, technology has a specific effect of changing the thing from a thing in and of itself uh, into, you know, stock or standing reserve. And I think that is extremely prominent in the digital. I think another thing that could be interesting here, speaking of um, um, uh, Terry, is how do you capture the totality of the digital experience? I had a paper this this um, um, this year at... Uh, at uh, the COAX conference in Weimar, which was called The Importance of Being Online. And ironically, the paper did not only highlighted the importance of being present, like temporally when a event is happening in the digital space to fully understand the idiosyncratic meme language that is created at the time, understand the reference referentiality of that meme as reference to that meme that a person posted 10 minutes ago. And you could try to trace it back the next day, but you're always going to be missing a few things. And lastly, was also the importance of the physical space in which on in which you access the internet. And there's sort of like a I, I call it the ontological turn for the digital, which is to recognize that your childhood computer room has impacted your digital experience as much as the interfaces you used to frequent. Because the sound of the machine 
the smell of the room, the chair you sat in, these are all ingrained in the memory of the digital experience because you remember the game, but you also remember how you felt playing it. And even in a flow state, the flow state is still mediated by the physical. And so these are two things you cannot separate one from the other. One thing um, I seldom DJ, but when I do, one thing I like to do is to not record the set on like record box and just record the music, but I'll put my iPhone on the table and I'll record the entirety of the room. In a, of course, it's a failed attempt, but in an attempt to capture what the totality of the experience, including the sounds of the people as they, you know, ebb and flow with the music. But I don't know, it's, it's always kind of imperfect. You, you know, you had to be there. You had to be online is the last sentence of that essay. It's difficult to figure out a way to circumvent, you know, the requirement of being for a lot of these experiences. I love the idea of a non, non-internet or non-net, non-network or I don't remember how you call it, digital experience. There's also this notion of speaker net, which could be interesting here to bring up, which is the exchange of files, uh, not speaker net, but sneaker net, uh, the exchange of files by foot. So you're in a place, I'm in a place, I have a USB or a CD or whatever sort of um, storage and exchange them not through um, fiber optic cables, but through sneak global sneakers, like through foot travel. Um, and that becomes another primitive. It changes the time of exchange. It changes the nature of the relationship between the people who are exchanging things because the effort is different. I think there are so many different ways we can change our digital cultures and the way we engage with them. Um, you know, checkpoints being one good example, sort of going away or eschewing um, identity persona driven platforms in favor of more pseudonymous, uh, more divulgatory platforms. And I, I love this, uh, the anecdote from Terry mentioned, but even things like sneaker nets or other primitives for file or data exchanges that are not the ones we currently, um, we're not currently doing. That's, you bring up a lot of really great points here. And, you know, one of the things that I think that you, I, this, you actually spoke about this in, in the, the other, um, section that we were, we were talking about, but, you know, you, you were talking about how many times people feel like they wish they could just start from zero with their profiles or their this or their that. I think that's something that I've really been feeling lately it is interesting when you talk about like when you DJ, you want it, you put your iPhone up to capture the room. I actually do the same thing because I do like having the sort of ambience that surrounds it because at least temporally, when I listen back to it, even though it may not come across to somebody else, like I can at least be reminded of my experience, whether it's a good one or a bad one, you know? And I think ultimately the recording or the archiving of something like that is, even though it is more sort of like a, a, it is like personal, like so much of the time, like I was just in Japan and I was taking a lot of field recordings 
of waterfalls and these sort of site-specific natural environments that I was in. It wasn't necessarily to share them, although I do feel like field recording has been kind of like very ubiquitous and ambient music and, and sort of like in many sort of different kinds of music, right? That's mm-hmm. uh, that at least contemporarily speaking. And so I do think, you know, you bring up a really interesting point there and it's like, you know, like I did this live performance with some friends where I recorded it and actually I, you know, I didn't record it through a board or anything. I recorded it live and it didn't sound great. And I actually just accidentally deleted it. And I'm sort of bummed out about that because I was looking forward to listening back to it and actually kind of remembering it because it was kind of an emotional time for me. Like I was moving across country. This was like sort of my going away final mm-hmm. sort of thing that I that I had with like my friends. It was a it was very it was a really emotional time for me, just personally. And so I lost this recording. And the only snippets that I have are from actually archived Instagram stories that stories, other, that other people took, and so, it, it, so it's it's remediated now through the capturing of the audience, and that's now my only, I guess you could say, archive of that of that time. No, um, I think that is a. Common experience, you know, documentation in most art forms is like, it's a bit of a chore. It's very difficult. And I think for many people, a big part of their practice is essentially archived or documented through Instagram stories, which from like an archival perspective is kind of terrifying, but there may be something interesting in that. I don't know. It's like a participatory archive. If at some point we're able to bring all those stories, like imagine an app where um, you connect all your Instagrams and each day or something, it pulls the story archive and puts it all together so you can all share memories as you go along or something like that. Um there are ways to think about memory that use these participatory archives, connect them and potentially provide a not fully holistic, but more holistic perspective than the single viewer. That's one thing that definitely like a a new archive, like a new archive archive philosopher might may say is that moving from the one sort of the single archiving paradigm, the one archivist, which, you know, is monoglossal. The person has like one voice. Um, They're not contested. There's no divergences in the narratives, right? It's very um, monolithic usually when you have like a single person building an archive, whereas potentially to have six different people's perspectives through Instagram stories, it creates a plurilithic um, archive that has polyglossal, has different voices in it, and it may be interesting to get those perspectives. Super speculative. Like, I don't know if that's that actually provides like a higher value long term, but in speculation, it may be an interesting thing to to look into. Yeah, that's 
That's actually really sort of fascinating. One of the things that I think a lot about is how you actually just mentioned this is how so much of the artist practice is archiving and and so much of it. And I think back to even like, you know, the lower uh, academic faculties of the past, whether it be, you know, the 1700s or whatever, you know, I think about how like, you know, Kant expresses this in, in his notion of like the schema, how there's these transcendental categories that we can that we're supposed to be like involved in arranging and in determining how these things sort of stack up. And it is sort of really sort of fascinating to me, at least like the history of the archive. And, you know, like the first manuscript on, on archiving was, it came out sometime, I believe in like, it's roughly like the 1500s and how I think, as language develops and as memory sort of develops and our temporality expands and our ability to synthesize new layers of information and generativity expand, also frames per second is another one, our archives have had to sort of expand too in our archival practices. Now, what I'm really sort of wondering is like, and I know that there's interesting apps like Zotero I think is a really interesting way to sort of uh, archive and cross-reference like academic or PDF Mm -hmm. information. And I think that can be a sort of very useful, like, I don't want to say offline, but I guess like quasi-offline tool in order to sort of, uh, you know, create information categories that can actually like withstand the onslaught of the attention economy or, or what's being sort of thrown at us 24 seven. So I, I do think everything that you're saying is really sort of interesting. Do you have a, a good rundown or history of the archive itself? Because you, you early on, you were talking about like the many different forms of, of archiving. Um, I don't. I, I. I. wouldn't say that I would be the right person to provide like a genealogy of the archive. Um, like put a capital A. Uh, I can think of a few maybe thinkers that I think would be good to put in the, in the show notes or something. I can definitely provide that uh, after the show. But you know, I want to be careful and not um, speaking out of term and and really making sure that the things that I say are correct. And this is a you know well-studied and storied field. And I'd rather rely a little bit on, I know folks who've done this work. Um, I have a friend of mine who just completed her master's in, in library and archive studies, who I think would be a good a good person to pull for that. So um, I'll abstain on this one. That's, yeah, that's, you know, that's really interesting. So would you say, so to get back to counterpoints, you interviewed uh, somebody who runs a sort of like internet archive. And mm-hmm. I forgot what, what was their handle again? It was um, Rebane 2001 on Reddit. Right. Yeah. That, um, that was a really sort of interesting conversation. If you want to sort of run through that a little bit, that, that would be awesome. So the year is probably 2021 and 2022. And I realized that the checkpoints video was gone. So I go scouring on the internet, trying to find it. And I find someone, I find a few copies on YouTube, of course, 
of the video who that's been reposted from Taya777. Uh, but if they don't, they unfortunately don't have the comments. I find a few um, articles, mostly like personal blogs about checkpoints um, and one YouTube video about it. And when I go on Reddit, I find this person who say, hey, by the way, I've archived not only the video on my personal, my personal public archive, but also I have the comments and they they drop the comments on YouTube um, for people to download. And so I reached out to her being like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working on this for my thesis. I'd be very interested in interviewing you. Um, she's based out of like Estonia or um, so we get to talking and I, I'm curious why this video, because I know the video and 45,000 people who commented know the video, but was she one of the people who posted checkpoints? Was she one of the people who, who in the last decade stumbled upon this video because of the algorithm? And her answer is no. She essentially around 2017 experiences the shock of deletion i.e. something she cares about deeply on the internet disappears. And from that moment on, she vows to never let it happen again. Building a homemade archive, she starts saving videos to which she ascribes a potential cultural value. And it's a very sort of loose criteria criterion that she's developed for herself. And She'll scour the internet and when she sees something that she thinks people will care about, then she'll save it. And at this point in time, I, I, you know, however many terabytes, I think she has over a million YouTube videos saved. A million YouTube videos. That is an immense amount with like an entire rig built um, in her home, uh, all sort of self-made. Additionally, she's not only saved the videos, but she's built... Uh, on GitHub, a few repositories of tools that help you archive both not only the video, which people may be familiar with the YouTube to download uh, Python library, but also the comments and the metadata surrounding the video, such as number of thumbs up, number of thumbs down, um, when it was posted, uh, who posted it, just like the metadata. And we end the interview with this beautiful sentence which I cannot get out of my head which is in her own mission to now save parts of the internet she of course is marred by her loss like she cannot forget this video she's lost and you know people who've experienced that shock felt, felt the same way but that last sentence is forget what you lost save what you can which I think is a beautiful exhortation to, of course, mourn digital loss, but also realize that there's time for us to save the things we care about and to do it now, right? The best time was yesterday. The second best time is now. Wow, that's really great. Yeah, and it's and you, you get into this in case of death folder. And, and, and oh boy! <laughs> and so that that that's actually pretty interesting. I I do love that as well. It's like, you know, I think about 
you know, like I just went to X, the Expo 70 site in Osaka, Japan for the World Festival. And one of the big projects, you know, out of all the massive projects and amounts of money that were poured into this to sort of revamp uh, Japan's image after, you know, post-war era. Mm-hmm. It, it, one of the things I think about is there was this giant time capsule that was sponsored by Panasonic featuring carefully crafted like 5,000 documents of, you know, archiving that would would be opened in 5,000 years. And so I think about like the notion of like the physical time capsule versus the digital and also like digital media corruption and how even like our cloud storage servers are not even safe. You know, like let's say uh, what, what's that? I, I don't really know what the, what it's called. It's like a solar. There's some sort of like thing in outer space that could like wipe all of our servers out or something like that. I, I don't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but I do think about even the, the potential to save things digitally are so there is a precarity to that as well. And I think what is made evident by checkpoints, and I think this is why the story is so evocative for many, is how salient it makes that precarity. Because the precarity is on a few different fronts, right? It's the platform can delete your content for whatever reason it deems. Like, it doesn't even need to provide you an explanation. You're on their turf, right? The second piece is that they might essentially fuck up. Um, that happened, I think, with MySpace, where essentially their own databases internally got corrupted, no backups, and a lot of user-generated content or data was essentially gone forever. And then lastly, I, you know, I talk about sort of the profit or the financial imperative when the company is sold or when the company, you know, goes through VC, private equity, blah, 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 the whole cycle Sometimes they're like, we don't need this part of the company. We sell it to somebody else. That person buys it, deletes everything, and then starts anew and just keeps only the the code. And I think about something like um, um uh, what's that? Um, uh, there was like a style, a style platform that was bought by um, um Essence, um. But you could like do outfits and whatever, and people had like. Oh, uh, I know that one. I know exactly what you're talking about. What's the name of that? It. I, I know you know it's Polyvore. Polyvore. I used to make so many collages on Polyvore that had like nothing to do with fashion, but it could be repurposed. Like before, you know, uh, Photoshop capture or anything like that. Yep. Like you could. I, I remember me and my friends used to make these like sort of like really weird digital collages at the time on that app. Polyvore was really fascinating because like you could use it for so many other things that, you know, technology in other areas, at least for iOS, had not caught up with that yet. No, 100%. And when it was bought by this whatever company... It wasn't maintained and essentially got shut down. Oh, that is one thing I really lament. I was like, Polyvore was the best. And, you know, I have images that I made for my music on Polyvore, just like weird sort of like cryptic memes or whatever from this uh, 
I don't know, from this sort of like different political era, which doesn't seem that different from now, but in retrospect, it, it's it's short, but doesn't feel like a long time. But yeah, that's a real, oh man, I miss that. Wow. There are so many tombstones, tombstones in the graveyard of internet platforms. It's like, it's sad, man. It's just like, it's, and, and that is one of the motivations in telling that story is like, really bring that precarity to the forefront and making sure that people are aware of it. And, you know, also realizing that fundamentally all memory is precarious. And that's why I bring up, um, you know, Kittler and um, sort of early media theorists who even in the CD, even in, um, if you want to go back to the Phaedrus and Plato, even in writing, people see uh, a decay of memory. And so I think we have to reckon with that progressive decadence of memory and sort of the inability we have to preserve things over time, while paradoxically, paradoxically also trying to do our best to maintain things that we think will benefit future generations. Um, so it's tough. It's just we're we're kind of stuck between between these two, yeah, these two rocks. That's really sort of interesting. I I think about like you know Francis Yates' book, The Art of Memory. Oh, memory, yes, yeah. of course. That that I think, you know, the sort of history of memory, um, it, coming from that perspective and thinking about. You know, but it is really sort of interesting because I think it's hard to even apply some of the techniques, the historical techniques of memorization when I feel like the digital archive has become this thing that it increases the volume, the potential for things to memorize themselves. So it's like, it's almost like harder to to create like a classical system based on like, you know, Giordano Bruno uh, mm -hmm. or Leibniz, who are two of my favorites uh, in applying their sort of scientific method of memory. Uh, uh, Nemnotechnics, I think is how it's pr mm -hmm. pronounced, um, to today's contemporary world. And so part of me is like, do you, part, like the thing that I found is like, I just need to turn inward and just like, look at way less shit, you know? So if somebody sends me like a video of something, like sometimes I just can't look at it because I'm like, I can't, this is like interfering with, you know, like I can't, I don't have enough RAM to even process this right now. I have, um, um I was telling one of my friends this the other day, I, I haven't seen that many movies. And in spite of, I adore movies. Like I really, really love them but I haven't seen that many because the, I, the, the thought of people who like watch a show or a movie every night, I can't imagine that bombarding, you know, your caveman mind with 24 image per second, if not more for two hours every day. <laughs> it's These good people, for your memory they go, system. They like, go it's on gotta, letterboxed. It, letterboxed is really interesting because that is kind of like a wholesome 
community based on these movie lovers, but I'm like, I can't keep up with this. Like, that's why when people say, well, what kind of movies do you like? I'm like, I like like Cyborg by with Jean-Claude Van Damme, like very little uh, dialogue, not a whole lot. I, I like like dumb action movies. Like John Wick is perfect for me because it's like I don't have to think about things. And I think... You, that's a really good point. Yeah, like I don't, I haven't seen that many movies either, even though I like watching them. It's yeah. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just relate to that to that point. No, no, I mean, and I, and I and I love them, and I see one movie, and it's also like uh, coming back to the sort of call it like a media diet. I cultivate it in a way like I cultivate, say, like fancy restaurants. Like now, when I go see a movie, I'm like, oh it's it's um it's delectable it's something that i thoroughly enjoy it isn't junk food to me right it's not mcdonald's i'm not gonna have it while i'm driving or whatever i want to savor the art of the image because the image is so potent right right if we if we truly believe that you know the images and video now is the vector of propaganda and misinformation we agree that the image is powerful. We agree that the image has the power to persuade, to convince, and to alter one's perception of the world. So why in the world would I expose myself to a random assortment of 24 images per second for 7,200 seconds? That seems unwise. <laughs> um, that is like a, a, a pure personal opinion. And when I think about a memory system and trying to, I have a list on my, on my, on my desktop that's called movies of like all the movies that I've seen. And it's missing a lot of movies. And I think that tells you a lot about media consumption when I'm trying to list off, list off all the movies that I've seen. Cause I want to remember, I'm actively always trying to remember and I can't because we're so we're so gorged with all this media all the time um yeah it's a hassle trying to remember everything we've consumed yeah you know that that's a really interesting point i think about you know just you know Baudrillard actually talks about this when he talks about like well what do you, what kind of movies do you like watching and he's like, I just like watching the dumbest shit possible. Like, I just want to go to a theater. And in and he talks about, like, sort of similarly to you, he's like, I don't, I, I love movies, but I don't need to see that many of them. And I don't, you know, I think what made Baudrillard actually interesting is he is not pretentious in pretending to know things he doesn't know. And he's he's sort of very, like, self-aware, like, I'm not, I don't have great taste in movies. I like watching action movies and I like to experience just like the, the, the cacophony of the explosions in a loud environment like a theater. And he's not really sort of, and I think taking a step back and being like, oh, well, if we're going to, you know, look at media theory it's I kind of like that like less nerdy approach, you know, because so much of like and I think about this in terms of like art criticism or media criticism, mm -hmm. like how I don't understand the purpose, especially when everything is so readily available through piracy. The purpose of 
like a film critic who's only looking at one film and judging it like I guess judging its validity uh now. You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't see it having the same function. Like I don't I don't understand why uh this even exists anymore. It's I think we're sort of post-critical in this way where things can only be examined like functionally in relationship to other things that and part of that is taking in its reaction its social reaction rather than you know examining based on this sort of 20th century criteria of like what makes a movie good or bad the function has definitely changed like the function is the function of the critic is has evolved because as you said with streaming like the um, you're a you're a Netflix like I'm um, hypothetically if a person is a Netflix subscriber and a person reviews a movie they're not going out of their way to watch it they're not going to the theater they're not looking at times taking a car driving to the theater to watch it they're sitting down and clicking five five steps to the movie it's so the recommendation if we talk about like the the cost to watch a movie has on a day to day basis really gone down I don't know if like the economics of paying $20 a month are equivalent to how many movies people used to see in the 60s or 70s but specifically the when you abstract the fact that you're playing on a monthly basis which most people do the cost to watch a new movie on streaming is very very low and so i think you're right the critic is no longer the one that compels the audience to go see something cuz they're going to see it on their screen if they want to watch it they're going to watch yeah, it yeah, yeah. if they don't they're not going to watch it now, I think it's still important in the media e- ecosystem for someone to have the wherewithal to uncover how these dangerous images are being employed by our artists, our directors, our cinematographers. Continental philosophy, especially with like AI and stuff like that, and all of these, uh, you know, Web 3.0 platforms, like, I feel like, if anything, like, the sort of rationalism that undergirds these projects, these, this quote-unquote sort of, like, rational imperative, just sort of reinforces the strength of uh, the need for linguistics and the sort of power of continental philosophy or... Uh, media theory in general, I think, I think sort of like a generalized media theory, like what you're talking about is still, I think it's really, really important. I guess just, just to make like a, a little distinction there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, um, uh, it's a, it's a silly pun, but for better or for worse, I said that we are in the M age, right? Um, and if we are in the M age, then one of the most important pers- people in this in this new era is the person who is able to analyze, contextualize, and deconstruct the image. And I think what may be true, like I don't actually read movie critics, it may very well be true that they don't actually do that. They fulfill like another maybe more corporate function of, I don't know, something about like advertisers or um, maybe like the Academy for like uh, awards, some kind of function that like is 
mainly based in industry and less in the overall cultural discourse. Um, specifically in the age where I think on Letterboxd, people write reviews, right? So there's already a critical discussion happening with movie viewers, and they're able to have that discussion on that platform without the mu- the, the movie critic being there. So I think the role is very different. I'd have to understand how magazines and stuff like that fully work to know what they're, if they consider their function to have changed or if they're still proceeding as if, you know, business as usual. Um, it, it seems like business as usual. You know, like, that's the thing is like, I, I wonder, you know, how much of this peop- can we just keep up? You know, this notion that, like the way a magazine has functioned within the 20th century is, you know, like some of the more interesting publications that I see now are ones that are really sort of, uh, they don't have a lot of text or they are, you know, sort of investigating a sort of broader, I mean, a, a broader ecology of what's actually taking place. They're not even even something like as basic as 032C, I think has mm-hmm. actually seen like the malleability and recognize like uh, that part of it is deconstructing the image. And that's why so many fashion magazines are just, there's just kind of pumping out the same, you know, celebratory thing. But it's like, you know, if everybody's a model, then nobody's a model. Like how much, like I, I almost feel like when every time I go on Instagram, I'm like, is or even out in Los Angeles, I'm like, is everybody just like a model? Like what, like what is keeping this? What is going on? Like, yeah, what, no, what what's is, going on with <laughs> that? Is with one this? of my yeah. that is you know there is um, um there are fields right now where there is an abundance of labor supply, and that's when that that's really when you you realize that economics is a flawed field, um, because theories of like Homo economicus or you know Homo rationalists, whatever you want to call this rational um, decision-making person who picks the things of the most marginal utility is a hundred percent flaw because the natural thing to do if there are in a city of 5 million people, you know, a one like if the model market is saturated, the last thing you want to do is also become a model. But, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people move to LA every year to become actors and models and whatever, in spite of there being already an abundant surplus success of, of those professions already. I don't know. It just, there's maybe also, there's maybe, I'm guessing that there's an economy of, it's been like professionalized to the point where like there's an economy of becoming a model. People sell classes, people sell connection or whatever there's probably people making money on all the people coming in to do this profession right that would be the smart thing for capitalists to do i suppose Mm. and that's a really interesting point when you you talk about how economic models don't really stack up and i think about this in terms of like you know just i think part of like what post-Marxism or, or like post-Marxist account, like economics have tried to address is like, like the old Marxian notion of like value form, classical value form, be- doesn't really stack up because I think 
value has become such an abstract entity in and of itself. And you know what drives these desires? You know, it, it, it is actually kind of weird because it's like you see there's like an abundance of labor fields. You know, there's like that meme where it's like, uh, God sprinkling the world with like salt and pepper and the thing comes off and it's like DJs, models, pocket, <laughs> you know, something like that. But yeah. still people still want to do it. That's why when people ask me like, should I start a pocket? I'm like, please do not. And I'm telling you this not out of some sort of competition bias, but like for your own good, like, you do not want to get into this now. Go into something that's less uh, codified because you're going to actually, by by getting into it at this juncture, it's going to be very sort of uh, heteronymous and it's going to be very difficult for you to like establish an identity within this, like, you know, I guess you could say now it's almost like a capped off media space. So what, one thing I'm wondering is like what drives people? Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at LA and I'm just like every single like band is trying to sound like crystal castles. Like how can this, like this can't like, why are you still trying to do this right now? This is so strange. I don't, I don't know. Um, probably something like the Girardi and Mimetic desire. I don't, I'm not a you big know, Gerard fan. I I don't uh, buy it. You, you don't you don't buy it. Okay. I mean that's fair. Um, but I think in social circles, at least in scenes, you see this. You know, um, the classic. Uh, I'm losing my edge. You know, I heard that. I heard that we're getting rid of guitars and buying synthesizers, and I heard we're getting rid of synthesizers and buying guitars. You know, the LCD sound system song. So, um, in in many ways, there are these flows towards specific movements, um, whether it be now like, you know, Crystal Castle sound or, um, you know, a couple of years ago, it was like that hyper pop sound that, you know, Gex and uh, PC Music uh, popularized. And, um, you know, I could see something like Gabber becoming super popular in a couple of years because I see a lot of more sort of avant-garde, ravey folks sort of listening to that now. So I can see that sort of seeping down through mainstream. And so essentially people go where um, if people are status maximizing or capital maximizing, they go where there's an abundance of resources. And so if the money's in the crystal castle, that's my reading. If there's money in the crystal castle, castle sound, if that's where the water is, you go to that well, you go to that lake. Now you may get to the lake and realize that there's, if you're an elephant in this conceit, you realize that there are, already a thousand elephants there but hey you're there might as well try a little bit and then you go to the next lake once the one down one is is has, has been drained and there's no longer any water left there and you know the beauty of this is i think in many scenes where there are specific like aesthetics or trends there's some people who will stay at the dried up lake getting a few drops of water here and there and when the seasons change again in five, six, ten years, even sometimes like in a few years, and the water comes back, then they're ideally positioned to be the one to, you know, once again accrue all that capital by being the first at this new lake in this very long extended metaphor um, on, on why people 
may choose to do something that is crowded. Um, I think in a counterintuitive way, it is crowded because there is an excess of capital and status there. That's a really interesting point. But would you say, like, to me, it's almost like the the excess of capital doesn't actually exist because it's like buttressed by a lot of like VCs. And part of me wonders, like, I think there is a kind of economic class dimension to the kinds of people who are willing to, you know, accrue social status in places that actually don't have an abundance of real capital in that they have trust funds, they have people, like their parents are like paying their way. I think it's sort of, I do think that there is kind of like a truth to that, you know, where people are, you know, because how many people, I think if you're really sort of in a desperate situation, I think this is what breeds like a kind of avant-garde mindset is like, you would be surviving to find the wells that are not tapped and could potentially yield an abundance. So it is sort of strange to me because I have I have actually seen these cycles where like, you know, people keep up this kind of like post-internet uh, angelic aesthetic and it kind of, uh, you know, people say it's over, you know, like there's this whole sort of resurgence in like, you know, post-2014 kind of like Tumblr core angelic yep. iconography and everyone was saying, like, this is over. This is fucking over. And then all of a sudden, this new kind of, like, anonymous, pseudonymous rap group, like, called BRG, which stands for, like, Based Retard Gang, who were actually sort of around for the first iteration of, of that kind of imagery or iconography, are now getting, like, massive on TikTok. And part of me just wonders, like, and it sort of... I guess puts into question my own uh, criticisms of Gerard. It's like how much of my own problem is that like, because I'm willing to go to places the first time around, I'm, I dismiss them as over too soon out of like my own kind of like hipster snobbishness or whatever. Versus, it depends what your incentives are, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think BRG in this example is they are they're the elephants who stayed at the lake that was dried up um <laughs> and i mean it, it 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 pays it paid off but there are probably thousands of lakes that i've never seen um you know that i've never seen rains again um in the same extended metaphor i i wonder if cuz you know there's there's a, a, a set of different games to be played of course there's like the very obvious one um Usually you can kind of track it on Instagram or whatever with the latest trend or, you know, um, like indie sleaze right now, say. Mm. Perhaps that's that's already over. I don't know. But people may play that game because they see it and it's evident. And the more evident the game is, the more the players and the steps are in that game. And so to give the example of a podcast... I think the reason why people want to start a podcast, fundamentally, one, just like uh, with the synthesizers, synthesizers, they sound good. And in the same way, speaking to your friends or speaking to people you think are interesting is a very fun thing to do. 
The second thing is that now the steps to make your first podcast have become so obvious that is, it's quite easy to execute on them. And so what is the math that the average individual does is that I can spin up a podcast essentially for $0 or the cost of, say, one mic on Amazon for $20 or like a dongle or whatever you want to buy. So for $20, I can make a podcast and I get a subscription to Buzzsprout or Anchor or whatever at $10 a month. That's the cost of, you know, a pizza at Domino's or whatever. And so if like in the grand scheme of, you know, the American dream, I can do that for three months and I have a upside of making a, getting a million dollar Spotify deal or, you know, making five, not even that, making $5,000 on Patreon at some point for an investment of $30, that seems like a good upside. If I can sell my guitars and buy synthesizers, essentially break even. So for $0, I have a chance to get a label, a record label deal and get an advance for $100,000. That seems like, you know, a sound, um, a sound economical, uh, economic bet, I suppose. Mm. That's, I think, how people rationalize it. But of course, the new thing, say the new thing now is you know, podcasts are over. Now the new thing is like zines. You know, Nylon's doing print zines. Mm-hmm. Zora had their zine. Uh, Byline did their zine. So we have these like more independent organization going back to the physical media, physical print. If that becomes a new thing and if companies start giving, if we see like Emma Chamberlain getting a million dollar deal for a, mag- a print magazine, then you'll have people to start, people like on the, we'll start following, but it's going to take maybe like three years for your friends to do it because by that time, there'll be a company that has productized zine making. So you say what you want, AI puts the images together, you write a few essays or whatever, and then you're able to make a zine for $10 a month. So there's like a downstream effect of popularity of a field, people getting rich from it, and then, you know, entrepreneurs, what they do, they they build the picks and shovels. So instead of building podcasts, people will build software to make podcasts and they'll sell it to people who don't know how to do it. And that's when you really get the, 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 the mainstream adoption of a creative um, practice, I think, when it becomes productized and commoditized in a way that you could just pay a monthly fee and be able to do it yourself. That's a really good point. The thing that I think about is like the democratization of the tools actually sort of make it so the individuals who want to like succeed at what they do, it actually is very, very difficult. Like, you know, if you're the kind of person, I understand it's like because the investment is so low, the initial investment, like your time investment is still really high. Like for me, like I you know, this is like a full-time job and I I feel very grateful for that. It is a lot harder, I think, unless you're one of those people who got in early and are now just sort of coasting off reputation. Like I'm not one of those people. I didn't make it, you know, I'm not big enough to, to have that 
mm-hmm. guess you could say opportunity, like, you know, I still have to actually like work and do my research and try, I think fairly hard in order to make it all work. But it is kind of interesting because I, it, because time is really important too. And also ownership of your own labor. Like there is a, a kind of structure that I think people overlook when it comes to uh, the efficacy of getting a name out there. I think I think we're almost to sort of tie back in to, to to counterpoint is like I I do think that the moment of needing to expose yourself or exposure has uh, an internecine uh, quality to it. It can actually backfire and hurt you financially, not just in terms of like starting your own like your employer, but also your ability to grow. Uh, a media project or anything or an artistic practice on its own. Like so many of like the cool, I don't know, like artists who show it like, I don't know, like Rena Spallings or whatever, for example, like they just have private accounts, you know, or something like Jenny's or something. Like I, I think that there's that, that to me is almost like a strategy as well. I know I do that. I lock my personal accounts when I think that they're getting too big and I, that that just works for me. I don't know. I mean, that seems sound. I think it it depends what people are optimizing for, right? right? In this specific yeah. scenario, I think what um, uh, you or other folks are trying to do, they're, they're trying to resist essentially influx of newcomers who are not hip to what they're doing like if you have a hit tweet something like that i see a lot of people lock their account when that happens because once you have a bunch of they're in the early sort of usenet days this thing called um uh, vm um i guess they call it the terrible september or um the september the september the september wave essentially a bunch of college students would get access to the internet in the 90s because they would go to college and they'd join a bunch of forums and a bunch of usenets and essentially ruined the vibe because they didn't know the norms, they didn't know the existing uh, customs and mores of the digital space. And they'd come on and sort of start shit and ruin it. And similarly, I think when people are exposed to an influx of an audience that has not been reared in their posting styles and what they're interested in, what this essentially does is it kind of ruins the fun in posting because if we agree that you're essentially captured by your audience, then your new audience is expecting one thing and they respond to maybe one thing that you post, which you kind of do as a one-off as a joke. And they like that thing and not the actual, the actual serious thing that you wanted to do. And that's a big conundrum, I think for a lot of makers, artists, creators, or whatever, is that in trying to hack growth, They've attracted an audience that's interested in one thing, but that's not the main thing that they wanted to do originally. And once again, that switching cost, that reset is very onerous. It's very expensive on the follower account and on the engagement, right? Which are metrics that creators care about a lot right now. That's a really, you know, these are things that I haven't thought about like very much at all. I'm just sort of like, figuring it out myself but but that is interesting it's like what are you optimizing for and i do think this is kind of like 
when I look at like music I like, I like like the most obscure hundred follower like SoundCloud thing, or I like like Luke Combs or like Aerosmith. Like there's like there's really sort of like no like middle ground to like the things that I find myself interested in anymore, you know? And it's, I, and I, part of me wonders is like, is part is one strategy to sort of keep yourself protected from various eyes who may not understand. So like there is like that gatekeepers keeping strategy or is that like you just keep growing and growing, but you have to have the sort of ambitions of like a Taylor Swift in order to do that. Like you can't just settle for like the middle. I think, I think the middle is just kind of like death at this point. I think it's a, there's like a, yeah, I, I, from what I understand, the middle is the worst place to be. Because you're not new anymore. And you're not popping. You're just like your audience is not big enough to fully monetize it. If, If we're just speaking in terms of, you know, Sometimes people get into this weird situation where they're making a bit of money, right? But it's not quite enough to even leave your full-time employment because it's just, you're just on the edge. And if you do, then there's no sort of promise that you'll actually be able to sort of grow this over time. Um, I see this a lot, even with like YouTube creators who find a niche. Um, And then I I don't think it's going to happen like Mr. Beast or anything, but... (laughs) if you are in a very specific niche and sort of that, that niche dies over time and you're still making that content, um, you're essentially kind of plateauing and just not growing anymore. And the algorithm hates that. And this is sort of why I think if you recognize that in yourself, the best thing is to just go the op- opposite direction. Lock yep. your account. Make it harder to access. Make everything that you do difficult to access because you'll find you'll find the right audience either way. I mean, that's at least how I've approached things, and I think I think that's actually really worked for me. Is like you actually want less attention. Like, unless you're willing to go to those lengths to be one of those people and, and take it to its logical conclusion, the best thing that you should do is, like, you should, like, you shouldn't be afraid to lose followers by locking your account and tweeting behind a locked account. You know, if the things that you're uh, ex- saying are congruous with, I don't know, your project or the things that you're actually trying to express, now, if you're just trying to, you know, lose people just for the sake of doing it, now that could pro- possibly have a, a negative, be negative as well. No, I mean, I, I've seen people kind of, you know, s- set their accounts on fire just because they want to raise, essentially, like cut, um, cut the ground to zero and sort of start it all over again. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes you need a, you need a palate, palate cleanse. I've seen people de- even do it on the following count. Every two years, they'll unfollow everyone and just start over again. It, I think we'll come to a point where digital hygiene becomes more formalized and we start to understand how doing sort of these things or not doing it can have an impact on both our creative abilities but also on our consumptions. 
I like that term, digital hygiene. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's, I, it'll for sure get captured if it hasn't already been captured already. Um, so <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts. That that's a really good one. I think we should. Uh, yeah, we, we might have to gatekeep that one. Well, this has <laughs> a been a little bit. Yeah, this has been really amazing. Is there anything else? Uh, you wanted to express from the project itself or any other, like just to get back to, to topic, for, like, I guess we've been going for a decent amount of time. So I was thinking maybe, maybe that could be a good place to sort of bring things full circle. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I'm su super excited, not only about this specific video, which as I said, unfortunately is gone. Um, but about the possibility for folks to you know build their own personal archives um exchange them between with one another um think of new primitives even in hardware to do that exchange um the book is out for pre-order right now um you know I, I i can give my like instagram stuff or twitter stuff it's all at being underscore on underscore line um and you know I do a lot of research on the internet and this, this is really my beat and the thing that I focus on. Um, and, uh, I, I don't have anything more to say, but forget what you lost and save what you can. That, that's the, that's the model right now. I really like that. This has been really interesting. I've learned a lot, super fascinating conversation. I think, I think you've taught me a lot, uh, about, you seem to be, you're very, very well, well versed in all of this stuff. You've covered like pretty much everything. So you, you've been an amazing guest and yeah, I mean, just keep in touch if, if you, if you're around and uh, yeah, this, this has been really, really good. Of course. I mean, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, and um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk soon. If you're ever in New York also, just let me know. Um, would love to kick it.